0: What a song! I love this. A couple of those ending verses. I'll sing your power to say when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Uh, as as we talk about this this saving God, uh, flip over to to Genesis chapter nine. Kind of ties right into to where we've been in the study of Genesis already. Is is looking at uh, not only the flood account and, and coming through that and, and God's covenant that He has. Uh, promise to, to his people, um, but also the fact that our God does desire to redeem and to rescue and to save people, right? Uh, so that's just a strong encouragement from singing that song this morning. We're going to be starting in uh, chapter 9 today, starting in verse 18, uh, all the way through the end of chapter, end of this chapter. So we'll be starting in verse 18 and ending uh, the, the chapter 9, this morning. Let me read the text and then I'll pray and then we'll get get into, into the study this morning. It says, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. It says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, and I don't know with what force he said this, but I'm pretty sure maybe it was strong. Maybe he had a soft voice and said, curse is Canaan. But I would imagine he probably said, curse it be Canaan. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let, and let Canaan be his servant. And in verse 28, Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So, all the days of, of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray, Lord God, as we come to you this morning, Lord, help us to, to just see the things that you would have for us to see this morning in this text. Father, as I've already spoken of, Lord, you are the God who is your graceful and your gracious and your merciful, Father. You are one who, who you do not want to see anyone perish. You, you're patient and wanting all to come to repentance and faith. Father, even through this text this morning, help us to see uh, your good character on display. Father, help us to be reminded of your, your judgment and your justice. Lord, help us to, to remind ourselves of, of the sin that's still ever so present and clings to us, Lord. Father, help us to be reminded of the, the ways you've told us to respond to each other as well. So, Lord, as we peer into to the text that you've given to us, Lord, we, we pray that you would, you would transform us, Lord, by the renewing of our minds. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we get into to the text that we're in this morning, we're actually getting into a transition in, in the narrative that we've been in in Genesis so far, right? So we've been through a creation account. We've seen sin sort of multiply on the earth. We've seen God's judgment of men as he's looked into their heart, and he says the the inclination of the human heart is evil, and that continually, right? So we saw that, and so he decided to, to bring the first global judgment that we've ever seen, and those people at the time ever saw as well. And he did that by, by drowning, uh, drowning the entire earth, with the exception of Noah and his family. Right? And so for years, Noah got a chance to, to preach a message, either verbally or through his act of obedience to God, that a day of judgment is coming. Right? And then we saw Noah and his family get into an ark, we, we heard the screams and the, and the plead that may have come from people. We listened to the silence. And then we, we saw God make this transition where he said, but God remembered Noah. Not that he ever forgot him, right? But God remembered Noah, and then the, the earth started to dry. We saw them come out of the ark, and we saw God make a, make a covenant with man that he would never destroy the earth in, in the way that he had done. Right? And, and then we saw a sign of that covenant that we get a chance to rejoice in every time you're driving down the street with your kid in the car eventually, right? and they go, look, dad, there's a rainbow you can go. That's a promise. That's a promise right? of God's goodness towards us until, until he judges the world again. So there's a promise. So we're making a transition now from, from those, those sort of initial creation accounts and in that judgment to now we're going to fast forward in, in history and in time because if you look at where we are right now, we're going to talk about this, this initial sort of the next generation. We're going to talk about Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we're going to get into Genesis 10. That's going to go into the genealogies. We're going to see more families we're going to get into to Genesis, Genesis 11, which will eventually get to the Tower of Babel. You're going to see people spread across the world and across the earth because of that event, right? And then we're going to narrow it down to even one particular family. We're going to get down to Abraham himself, and we're going to see how God is going to work through his plan of redemption all the way through the end of the narrative, through the end of history, right? And so right now, we're, we're in a huge transition to go, we're not looking at Noah, we're not looking at his family or him per se anymore as a person and as a man of God, but now we're starting to transition to the next generation, okay? Now we're starting to look at at Noah's sons or his progeny. And we pick up on that in in that first word in verse 18 where it says now, right? So that's a transition. We're moving in, in another direction uh, even as we get a little bit further through the text, we're going to see some thens that are going to help us to transition through some, some events that are happening right now. If I were to give you an outline of what we're going to look at today through these verses, through verse 18 through verse 29, we're going to see an introduction, right? introduction of, of some nations. We're going to see an intoxication that's going to take place. We're going to see some indignation occur in somebody's heart we're gonna see innocence being demonstrated, we're gonna see an invocation, and then we're gonna see an interview. Did y'all notice that? Like, that was a lot of eyes, right? It was a lot of eyes. So we got an introduction, we have intoxication, we have indignation, we have innocence, we have invocation, and then we have an interview in the form of actually an exit interview is what we're gonna look at. All right, so we have an interview. So first with this, with this introduction, and I will say it, it, it was interesting sort of studying through this text because um, if, if you know the history of, of slavery across the world and particularly in our country, men in history have taken texts like this to actually um, propose and encourage slavery of other, other people, right? And so by a proper study of the text, we're going to find out this has nothing to do with one people group enslaving another people group, right? It has absolutely nothing to do with this. If anything, we're going to, again, look at the character and nature of God as well as the character and nature of man. That's what we're going to see from this particular text. But first, let's look at this introduction, and really it's the introduction of of, of Noah's sons again. Is what we're going to see in verses 18 through 19, Verses 18 it says, Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. All right, so this marks that transition away from focusing in on Noah and shifting to this next generation. The sons of Noah here is used repeatedly to bring our focus again to, to Noah's sons, to the next generation that's going to be involved in continuing the, the progress and the plan of God uh, here. If we were to work our way backwards in this text in verse, thir- in verse 19, you've got to note that, that it makes it really clear where all of humanity stems from, right? All of humanity comes from Adam and Eve, yes, right? But Noah gets onto the ark, and then there's three sons that the entire earth is populated by, right? It says the whole earth was populated from these three sons. And then naturally, the natural man goes, how can this be? No way possible, Three families, right? Three families able to do that. There's no supporting evidence. And I would say with God, you don't have to have a supporting evidence, right? If he wants it to get done that way, he'll get it done that way. Obviously, he got it done that way. He stated it that way, that the whole earth was populated in this way. However, here's what's really neat about this to me. Uh, Even secular scientists these days will actually affirm that there's one, one human race. There's not many. They didn't come from different places. There wasn't some special act by God to to create a group of people here and a group of people here. There's one common human race. Here's what uh, a New York Times article said in in, uh, August of 2000. This is Dr. Venter. He was the head of uh, some Rockville medical, some genomic corporation. There it is. So doctor and scientist at the National Institutes of Health. He's recently announced that they had put together a draft of the entire sequence of the human genome. And the researchers had unanimously declared there is only one race, the human race. All right. Now, again... Do we know how God worked all this out through three particular, through Sham, Ham, and Japheth? No. But at the end of the day, that's the record. That is the record. From this one particular family, the entire earth is being populated. So therefore, this section of Scripture does not grant or permission uh, for uh, what people tried to use this for in the past. Is We're going to look at this Ham is going to have particular focus here, and then the people of Canaan... In the past, people would take that, that sort of section of Scripture to say, oh, they were evil and bad, therefore you can enslave and you can do horrible things to these people. At the end of the day, we are all brothers and sisters coming from one particular family, one particular line, one particular group of people. So the whole world is populated from these sons, uh, and this is also evidenced by, in Genesis 11, once we get to that narrative, you'll see they all had a common language. Right? That was part of the problem. You all can communicate, you know what you're saying, and so God has to confuse their languages, and not only confuse their languages, but then he scatters them across the earth because they had congregated in one place. Right, so that common language would even say they came from one particular source, and that source is, is Noah and his, his three sons. So, so this introduction of Noah's sons uh, is also not in chronological order. So typically, when we look at genealogies in the Bible, it's in chronological order, right? Oldest to youngest, okay? Here, you get the names, uh, and this gets repeated over and over again the way they are actually described. It's Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? So some people would think, hey, Shem was the oldest, Japheth was, was the, the youngest in this order. In actuality, Ham, he's actually the youngest in this family, right? Now, I believe God probably wrote it this way through Moses to say, pay attention to Ham, right? Like, we're, we, we want to direct your focus to Ham here in this particular text. And we know that Ham is the youngest. Here is, uh, if you were to go, if you were to fast forward in the narrative that we're going to be in today, Genesis 9:24, 24, uh, it actually states when, when Noah woke up from his drunkenness, from, from the wine, he knew what his youngest son had done. Right? He knew what Ham had done. Right? So we know that Ham is actually the, the youngest when it comes to chronological order here. So note that the only son of Noah who actually has a successor named here as well, and we know that the, the other sons had children for themselves because we can see the record of their genealogy in, in Genesis 10, but the only one that's pointed out as having a successor here is, again, it's Ham right? So it's Ham that we, we have special attention and special focus on in this text, and then you got to wrestle with, well, why, why is Moses pointing out Ham specifically here in the text? Why is God directing again the light on him and, and his successor, Canaan, specifically? So I want you to remember, I don't know, when did we start this Genesis series? It's it's been a while. I don't know. But at some point, we did history and background, author, occasion. We, we went through all of the sort of the setup to help us understand the book of, of Genesis. Part of that setup would have been the author himself was, was Moses, right? And the occasion for when he's writing this, they're probably on the cusp of, of getting into the promised land, right? And if you remember, when they walk into the promised land, this is not like houses are empty and homes are ready, and you can just walk into all these things, you're going to have to go slaughter some people. You're going to have to go destroy some people. Right? Some of this, yes, they will melt away, and they will run away in fear, but there's, there's a battle cry that needs to happen. And so you can also, you can, you can almost imagine Moses on the cusp of the Promised Land going, we've got to go fight for our lives. We've got to go fight for this promised land. And what we find out is the fact that the people that actually occupied that promised land, they're the Canaanites. So so almost as if Moses, through God, is giving the people of Israel a whole history to understand why are we going to go do what we're about to go do. Because we know murder is wrong. We know killing your brother is wrong, but help us understand. So we're getting a history, we're getting a reminder of what's actually happening. Okay, So just keep that in mind. That's why the particular focus on on Ham, particular focus on Canaan, is they are about to walk into the promised land, and they need to know the history of what we're doing. If you fast forward to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, you can flip through some of these pages. This was the, the, the covenant that God actually made with Abraham. And we'll get here and we'll flesh out what this covenant is and how this fleshes out across time. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, here's what God says. He says, Now the, the Lord said to Abram at the time, He says, Go forth from your country and from your descent and your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make a great nation, and I will bless you and make you make your name great, and and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse, and I will and, and, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So part of that covenant, part of that promise is it's an actual physical land promise. Right? There's a land that you're you will you will take, you will you will occupy. Uh, A little bit further along in Genesis, Genesis 15, verses 18. Genesis 15, verse 18. You can look at the specific people groups they're going to have to deal with when they're walking into this promised land. Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given the land from the river of Egypt. As far as the great river the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenazite, and the Katamonite, right, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite and the Rithrium, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Canaanite, and the Gergesites, and the Jebusites, those were all the people groups that they were going to have to go in and dislodge from this particular promised land. The Canaanites, they they continue to have a pattern of unrighteousness Um, if you flip over to deuteronomy chapter 9 deuteronomy chapter 9 so not only is it going to start with him but it's going to continue to go just through their genealogy these people will have a continued pattern of unrighteousness deuteronomy chapter 9 deuteronomy chapter 9 God's speaking here it says it is not for your righteousness not for your righteousness, Israel, people of God. It's not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, that promised land that we're talking about, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations. It's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you, in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. All right. So again, if you get what's happening here, they're on the cusp of going in to do battle with the Canaanites, and they're getting all this history, they're getting all this reminder of what's going on. Last couple of verses we'll look at is actually Exodus 15. Exodus 15, verses 14 through 18 um, this is so interesting. So last night, my family and I, we were reading through this account, and we just happened to get to this part of Moses' song when they cross over through the Red Sea. So Moses' heart is just filled with, with, with praise towards God, and he's, he's singing out these words. We get it captured in Scripture for us. And then verses 14 through 18, part of this song that Moses sings, it says, The peoples, they have heard... They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. It says, then the, then the chiefs of Adam were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them, grips them. All the inhabitants of, again, here's that name, Canaan, have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon uh, upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until... Your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased. And then he goes on to say, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. But you can see, again, the the reason, the the, the sort of why is Ham being singled out? Why is Canaan being singled out? you got to understand the history, right? There's some history involved in here. Uh, So in summary, the attention of this entire narrative is switching away from, from Noah switching to the next generation, right? So that's where the introduction comes in, this next generation. We see God's repopulation of the entire earth stems from those those three families, right? So his in, the entire earth is being filled with people through those three, three families. And we get this introduction to uh, a one particular lineage, particularly the, the Canaanites is what's happening here in the text. We get an introduction to to that one particular lineage and uh, to the Canaanites themselves. Now, for me, uh, I I was trying not to go off on a rabbit trail in this thing, but I just found it so interesting that we just came from a judgment narrative, being the ark itself, right, the flood, a global flood, to again uh, Moses sitting here writing this so that the people of Israel can go to the promised land to again bring judgment on people. And I just go, like, y'all, will, you, will we please understand that judgment is near, like, at all times in life? It may not be the final judgment when Christ comes back to rule and reign, but uh, we had a dear brother in our church pass away, right? Now, fortunately, he was, he, was, he was in the Lord, had a strong faith all the way to the end. It was beautiful to, to see all of that happen. But he's standing before his maker right now so so just take heed take heed to that right judgment happens all the time god is a just judge he will not allow wickedness and unrighteousness to go unjudged so there's a proper response to all of those things this morning i'm just calling us to be reminded of those things so that's the introduction that's the introduction Now let's look at this this, uh, account of this intoxication that occurs in verses 20 and 21, the intoxication here. It says, then Noah began farming, and he planted a vineyard, he drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and he uncovered himself inside his tent. So he drank of the wine, and he became drunk, and he uncovered himself inside his tent. Again, then, that that word then gives us a transition. We're moving along in our narrative. We're moving along in history here, indicates that we're making progress in in our historical timeline. And because of the curse uh, pointed out on Canaan, this must have have been some time uh, into the repopulation of the earth, right, in the sense of uh, ham, He's having children. Sham's having children. So this, where we are from a timeline perspective, we're moving along in time. Don't know how many years exactly, but Genesis 10 indicates that Canaan was the youngest in the birth order, right? So he would have had children. Canaan in and of himself, he's in that birth order. So you can see there's some time that has elapsed between them getting off the ark. Uh, God originally saying, hey, the whole earth's being populated through through this particular family. And then the point in time in which we are right now, now, the thrust of, of the passage where we are right now is geared upon the, the drunkenness of Noah from the wine that he produced. Right? So that's, if you, if you look at it again, it, it speaks of the vineyard being planted in, in verse 20. He drank of the wine, verse 21. Again, him becoming drunk. The, the, the whole thrust and what we're looking at here is geared towards this drunkenness drunkenness of, of Noah or the intoxication of Noah. Now the results of of Noah's uh, intoxication portrayed here as him him uncovering himself. So he un- uncovered himself. It's uh, a natural response of, of the human body to produce when uh, when processing alcohol uh, to generate heat. And so from maybe from the heat, maybe from him just not thinking properly, he he uncovered himself and he laid naked. Uh, inside of his tent. So, so Noah loses all his ability to think and process clearly here. He is no longer under control of his own faculties. So it's, it's not necessarily the act of drinking that is the quote-unquote sin. The act of, of being or getting drunk here is the issue. Okay, again, it's not the act of drinking itself that's the, the, the sin here. The, the problem with this whole narrative is the fact that Noah got drunk, that he, he lost his ability to, to think clearly and, and to process properly. Just to work through a couple of these this thoughts, Proverbs 23, just as a starter, Proverbs 23 Verse 21, it says, For the heavy drinker and and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. The Proverbs in and of itself provide a a great warning. The the one that we're going to look at, Proverbs 23, provides a great warning about drunkenness, about intoxication, about being inebriated. It gives a a riddle. So flip over to Proverbs 23. Just take a look at this this riddle that, that we'll look at as well as an exhortation, an answer to the riddle, and then a description of what drunkard's foolish thought's life, uh, what what encompasses their thought life. So Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35. It's going to give us a riddle. It's going to give us the answer to the riddle, an exhortation, and then a description of a drunkard's foolish thought life. Proverbs 23, verse 29, it says... Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Take that riddle home to a kid, right? and <laughs> just throw those clues out there. Like who? Who? Like they don't even know what's happening in their life, right? I, I just I look at the one about the. Who has wounds without cause? I think you guys are all at an age where you're making decisions about how to, to live your life. You, you've seen the decisions of other people. Right? Recently, we had a car slide off a road here. right? car ended up upside down in water. Uh, unfortunately, people drowned. There may have been alcohol involved. Right? But like the wounds that occurred there, they weren't even aware of what was happening kind of what, what's being indicated there. So drunk, you're stumbling, you're bobbling, you're getting wounds on yourself, and you don't even know how it's happening when you wake up. Right? So that's part of the, 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 the riddle here. Who has, wo- who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? I'll give you the answer. Those who linger long over wine. Those who, who go to taste mixed wine and then here's the exhortation. Do not look on wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Think about that. Go try that one. All right. <laughs> when I was reading that, I thought the same thing. I was like... That would be an interesting challenge to give a friend, right? I want you to go lie down in the middle of the sea. Maybe you don't even say that to a friend. Maybe you shouldn't have enemies, but that would be, you know, you should just go lie down in the middle of the sea. But anyways, but, you know, you will be like the one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Not only that, or like the one who lies down on the top of a mast, right? And this mast being on a ship in the middle of rocking water, probably the most unstable part of a boat. That's what you will be like. It says, they struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? Well, when, and, and here's, here's a really strong warning, right? I will seek another drink. After all of that, I will seek another drink. Again, it's not the act of drinking that's, that, that is the concern. It's not the act of drinking. It is, are you in control of yourself? Noah was not in control of himself, as we're going to see. For the New Testament believer, we are called to be sober-minded. We're called to, to not let anything have mastery over us. recalled not to be addicted to anything. There's a couple of verses just to consider when you're thinking about drunkenness or intoxication. 1 Corinthians 6:12 says all things are lawful for me. But but not all things are profitable people. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So many times people go, I, I can I can drink and be okay, and then they end up addicted to alcohol. For the New Testament believer, I will not be mastered by anything. How about our thought lives? 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are doing this. We should be doing this actively. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So our minds should be constantly engaged. 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, like a roaring, lying, seeking someone to devour. Again, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. 1 Peter 4, 7, the, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment. And be sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 1 Peter 1, 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, it's not the act of drinking that's in view here. It's the overconsumption leading to intoxication that that Noah completely, he completely messed up. So Noah's overconsumption of wine led to his inability to, to think clearly. It left him vulnerable to to attack. It's almost like that verse from 1 Peter chapter 5 where it says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. His own son, Ham, is sitting there waiting. And go, I see you're getting drunk. And he's waiting to devour his own father. So, that's the intoxication, by the way. That's what's happening. So we've got Noah, uh, a man who up until this point, God said nothing but positive things. He has one lapse in judgment. One lapse in judgment. His intoxication leads him to, to go to his own tent, to uncover himself, Let's look at this indignation that occurs in verse 22, indignation in verse 22. Genesis 9 again, Genesis 9, 22. It says, Ham, the father of Canaan, he saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. Again, you got to remember, where did... Where did we leave Noah in his drunkenness? Was he just out in the middle of the field, corralling? No. He went to his own tent, uncovered himself in his own tent, so he was in his own tent, and then we got him for for some unknown reason. We now find him in the tent with his father. Did he follow his father in his drunken stupor back to his tent? text doesn't tell us. Or did, he, did he just happen to wander into his father's tent and, and found, find his father in, in that state? Again, we don't know. question is, what was he doing there? And better yet, what happened next? Now, we'll tell you, if you go grab a bunch of commentaries on this section of Scripture, man, the human mind can go off into crazy things about why he was there, what he was doing, but it at the end of the day, we are not going to go into dark and perverse things, right, at the end of the day, because it doesn't matter. What matters is his reaction. What did he actually do when he found his father in that state, in that vulnerable condition, in, in a condition of him not thinking properly, him acting in a manner that was probably not worthy of the call into which he has been called, how did he respond to him in that situation? That's, I think that's the more important part to, to look at here and to examine. So his reaction to his father's condition is that he went and told somebody else. Almost in a, a mocking sense, right? Hey, brothers, come, come look. He's down. He's out. I knew it. I, I knew it. In my heart of hearts, he was an evil man. I was waiting for this day. It's kind of what you get from, from the narrative, right? Is, is He had no interest in protecting or preserving or helping someone who was in a bad state or bad condition. That's not what it was about. It really reveals to us what was operating in his heart at the time. I'm reminded because because, you know, there's there's verses out there that talks about foolishness is bound up in in the heart of a child, and we all know the latter part of that verse, right? Rod drives it far away from him. but It's almost like Ham just didn't get enough of that rod. Like, that foolishness is still bound up in his heart, and it's just overflowing in his reaction to his own father. Psalm 37, verse 12 says this, The wicked... Here's what the wicked does. The wicked plots against the righteous. And he gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, though, for he sees his day is coming. Remember the Israelites going into the promised land and going to go wipe out and bring judgment on these people who long ago mocked mocked Noah. And slandered Noah. So the Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword, and they have bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. We're only but a few years past the the, the judgment that occurred on the ark right in the in the time in the time scale of eternity right so we're only at a few years past that right in 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 a perverse world and and yet there was there was not eight passengers on that ark on that on that vessel of grace that floated there was actually a ninth passenger so although judgment sort of got thrown upon all of humanity during the flood. Sin did not get finally dealt with. And that's what we're seeing unfold in this intoxication. Yes, uh, Noah sinned. And then we've got this anger towards the Father in Ham himself. That's sin. This just continues to help us understand Sin has not been finally dealt with. It, it traveled with them all of those days on that ark as they bobbed up and down in the water. So the sinful nature of man still exists, and it's demonstrated in Ham's unrighteous response to, towards his father's condition. We find Ham finding some type of delight here. He's rejoicing in his heart over what's happening. He has a, a desire to see his own father's reputation destroyed. He has a desire to, to slander him by calling other people in. Hey, come look. Come come see what I see. And then the contrast and the reaction between him and his brothers, again, point to the fact that the issue here is, is what is going on in the human heart. Let's look at the innocence being displayed, and we'll, we'll rush through these next couple outline points here. So the innocence being displayed in verse 23. So in contrast, we get this word "but," right? So in contrast, "but," Sham and Japheth took a garment and they laid it upon both their shoulders, and they walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away, so that they did not see their father's nakedness. So the immediate contrast sets up or is, is set up between Ham and his brothers. So Sham and Japheth's reaction, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces are. Turned away for the purpose, so that they did not see. Ham is in the business of tearing down, and his brothers are in the business of restoration and protection. Sham and Japheth, in effect, they imitate check this out they imitate the very nature of God when in the garden and Adam and Eve fell and they sinned. God covered their nakedness. He covered them. So they're imitating the very nature of God Himself. The contrast between the sons drives towards the consequences, but it also helps us to, to ask our own selves how do we respond to people's sin around us and around you? When a brother or sister has fallen into a pattern of sin, how do you respond? When you when you notice somebody going off the rails, do you, do you find some type of joy in that? Do you do you mock? Do you slander? Do you enjoy that delicious morsel of gossip that goes down so easily? Like what, what's your own response? I just reminded of this just working through a couple of passages. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brother, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, what are we called to do? Go restore such a one. How are we to do it? In a spirit of gentleness. What else are you supposed to do? Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Turn your face away from it. You go on a divine rescue plan, but you turn your face away from it. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 through 15. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Here's a cover-all for all of this. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Romans 15, verses 1 through 3, it says: Now. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, to his building up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, says Christ. So again, assess your own response. How do we how do we help our brothers and sisters who may fall? or fail along the way. So that's the innocence that we see being demonstrated by, by Shem and Japheth. And then lastly, let's look at this invocation, and then we'll look at this exit interview really quick. The invocation in verse 24 through 27, here's what it says. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him, So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. This is an invocation, not a prophecy. So so Noah doesn't have some divine sort of knowledge of what's going to happen here. Uh, this, this is an invocation in the, in the sense of he's, he's making an appeal to a higher authority for something to happen. You can almost say he's praying to God, I want you to punish Canaan for what they are doing. Almost like he has seen Canaan's uh, pattern and behavior in his life as his grandfather. Right? And he's going, this is not going to end well. Bring the judgment on them. Not necessarily on him, but on Canaan in his family line, so this is more of like a uh, appealing to a higher authority for something to happen. And the consequences uh, of the reaction involve cursings and blessings here. Right, the consequences to 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 Canaan, to to Ham, or to Canaan is that they will be servants of servants. This is the lowest of lowest servants, by the way. That's what it's trying to communicate here, right? That's what Noah is praying will happen. Then we also see blessings coming upon Shem and Japheth through this. And then lastly, lastly we see this exit interview that just gives us a, a summary of, of Noah's life. So Noah lived 350 years after the flood. He witnessed a lot during that time. Could you imagine everything that he got a chance to see? It says, all the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. That's the the last word that we hear about Noah in that text. And so we've seen this morning, as we worked through the, the text this morning, we saw an introduction of the nations, we saw intoxication, we saw an indignation, we saw an innocence, an invocation, and we saw an interview or an exit interview. My my hope is that you see God's character on display here. He saved people for himself. He continues to save people for himself. But please don't forget, God is a just judge, right, who will one day judge the living and the dead. It will happen. But also be reminded of the fact of, and we operate in these horizontal relationships all the time. And we, we offend one another and we get offended by one another. But there's proper responses to, to, to these relationships. Because you, if you're in Christ, you've been forgiven, right? He has, he has come to rescue you. How much more should we be doing the same things for our brothers and sisters? Right? So... Let's learn a little bit about God. We'll learn a little bit about ourselves. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. I do pray that, uh, that uh, you have been glorified in the teaching of your word. As always, Father, I pray that you, you would use these times to equip your saints to do the work of your ministry, Father. Lord, we do praise you for who you are. Uh, as we saw that, that you sent your son to rescue and redeem all of those who you would. Father, we, we, we thank you for that. But Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts that we would in turn do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who may be going through a difficulty in time. They may be weak. They may be unruly. Father, you, you've told us to, to go out and, and rescue and redeem those people, Lord. So help us to, to uh, do away with any fear in our lives to do that, Lord. Help us to, with all boldness and confidence, take your word uh, to, to, to our brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you for your, your unfolding plan of redemption that we'll continue to study. Father, I'm so excited to see how in, in, in history past, Lord, you have worked out a specific plan to send uh, a, a rescuer to this world, uh, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, be with us throughout the rest of this week, and I pray all this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.